welcome to Campfire Football. This is episode 18, and I'm Sebastian North, your host, and it's been a minute. I apologize to any of you who uh, were wondering where I was. Don't worry, nothing terrible happened. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of things did, but nothing bad. So, I ended up going to England for a twice-postponed family wedding, and it was lovely. Though, the day I arrived... I found out the queen died that morning. So on went an entire week of just festivities with family in a sort of somber British environment. But it was also nice. People were just seemingly grateful, happy. Overall, there was a sense of community and a vibe of connectedness. And it was just nice to be there for that. I was not able to stay for the whole entire you know, giant royal funeral. My girlfriend did, and she said it was quite the thing. Fortunately for me, I did not actually buy tickets to go see any games that weekend in advance because they were all postponed to a later date. So we'll start there. Why not? Because there's so many random things for me to get through just to sort of feel like I've caught up. That's kind of what this episode is going to be a little bit about. I'll hopefully ending up right to where we are today, which is pre-Champions League kickoff. As I record Tuesday, October 4th, it is noon in Colorado. So the games were canceled and I thought it was really interesting because football decided to cancel right off the bat, right when they found out the news that the queen had died, football for the weekend was going to be called off, but they didn't do this for other sports. They kind of, the other sports waited to decide what they would do and then decide, well, no, let's actually hold our events and you know, we'll have tributes for the queen. I'm sure a part of that is because they probably realized, well, people aren't going to be watching football because that's going to be canceled we have an opportunity to gain some viewership here on a weekend. Hey! So, I have a feeling that's what happened uh, for the other sports. They went ahead and did good tributes to the Queen. And I think a lot of football fans were disappointed that they were not able to share this moment in their most communal environment, which is a football stadium for a lot of people. So, interesting debate that was happening there. Hearing it in England, I thought, you know, hearing both sides of the story and just hearing people's way of negotiating how they felt about the royal family was always really interesting. So anyway, that was that. Also, what happened that same day, Thomas Tuchel was sacked, basically when I was on the plane, actually. Uh, I got off, turned my phone on, and I had messages from my friends saying, look, Tuchel's been sacked, which was definitely a shock that it happened so fast. Um, I kind of expected a couple more weeks, really, because I will say the Dinamo Zagreb game was dire, and there were different performances that were leading up to that that were no good, West Ham being a a really, really big one. They turned a a certain defeat into victory in just a matter of two minutes and with the help of VAR. So that was already not looking good. Then they lose to Zagreb, and I think what I sensed was a slight sense of toxicity and negativity setting into the team where players were getting played who you kind of got the feeling Tuchel wasn't already that much in favor for, right? Pulisic was coming off the bench for the final 10 minutes of games, not looking all that excited, but trying as hard as he could. Ziyech was somehow getting starts, even though he had not really been in the fold much the season before, really in preseason. Was he in the shop window? What about Connor Gallagher, who, you know, has been Baptized by fire at Chelsea. He's had a struggle at the start until this weekend. And you got the impression that there was just discord in the way the team was set up, in the way they were playing. 
And so if you're Todd Bowley and you're behind the scenes and you start to get an, uh, the vi- this kind of vibe that it's happening between the coaches and the, play- the coach and the players, and you may already have this bi- vibe from him, uh, from having worked with him all, o- all o- summer, look, I think it's very, very plausible that the Bowley and his team were already a little on edge. And they were like, look, we'll tolerate this guy if he's winning. But if the results on the pitch and also the vibe around the club, the relationships in the dressing room, if all that starts falling apart, he's gone. And we'll go in a direction that we want to go in, hopefully, for the long-term future. And they they appoint Graham Potter. You know what? I'm really excited for Graham Potter. This is a guy who left the English game to go coach in Sweden, went to Osterunds, did very, very well. There's lots of interesting stories about him if you haven't heard he would sign the players up for drama and ballet classes and theater, things like that, sort of to just get them out of their shell more than anything else, to learn to express themselves and be confident in who they are just as just people, right? So you do things like that, that I, you hear about people doing sort of in, you know, high school, college, you know, sort of youth levels, but you don't hear about that kind of interpersonal stuff very often at the top level. So he did very well there, went to Swansea, did excellent there got the promotion to the Brighton job, which was very contentious at the time, actually. You have to remember Chris Hewton had done very well to get Brighton promoted and keep them in the league for a season, and then they sacked him and brought in Graham Potter, who people didn't know much about. And he's done an excellent job at Brighton. So the fact that he gets this opportunity, I think, is great. Um, But also Todd Bowley, in, in the sort of aftermath of sacking Tuchel and bringing in Graham Potter, he also then goes in some conference and decides to talk about changes or additions he would like to see to English football. The quotes were hilarious. I mean, the all-star game thing was terrific. It was really funny to see all the reactions. My opinion on that doesn't matter, not necessary. I think the only all-star game people really care about here in the U.S. is basketball, and that's because they can do things that aren't as much of a risk to their physical health. The game can be played at a, at a slow pace. You can allow tons of dunks. Players can just vibe and hang out. It feels like, you know, sort of a neighborhood court atmosphere with, like, the top players in the game. That's why the All-Star game for basketball is good. The MLS All-Star game, meh. It's okay. I think one thing that's good about it is that they'll take the All-Stars and they'll play against the top side, which is fine. Um, but it's during the summer, so it's a – friendly for the top side and to gear up sort of for the season, a preseason friendly being played against the All-Stars. So uh, it, it's there's a weird matchup there in terms of where all the players are coming from. The goalie wars thing is the best part about the MLS All-Star game. Other than that, again, these are not events that fans, I think, get really in any way uh, emotionally inv- invested in any way. And so the other problem is if they're not emotionally invested, then is it really entertaining? And I think most people don't find it so. Okay, that's covering the All-Star game. I do think the multi-club system he's talking about is something that we will really start to see. And by the way, it's already happening. I've talked about this on this podcast with coaching situations where, by the way, every single major club in Europe have some kind of pro or have some kind of academy set up or, uh, you know, partner club here that wears their uniforms. There, there's Every single major club in Europe has that somewhere in the United States and in many, many of the states. So if they already do it there at the youth level, the idea that they would just take over a professional club that's you know, some fledgling small club somewhere and just sort of created in the brand, 
I mean, this kind of thing happens. You know, it, it's. It, I don't think it's that wild of a stretch. Is it something that can work? Why not? Right. I, Leipzig have shown good things that have come out of it. Coaching pathways, certain player pathways. The argument that maybe these guys get to the top club super rarely. That's fair, and it probably won't happen often at all. But hey, it's always something for people to keep in mind. Now. Graham Souness decided he had something to say about Graham Potter's replacement, Zerbi. Roberto Zerbi comes in, and he's had a pretty interesting resume. He said seven clubs in nine seasons, as Souness did not fail to let us know. And Souness also told us that it was a risk. Now, when pressed on this a few days later on Sky Sport, he said everything's a risk. Every manager appointment, every player that you bring in is a risk. And then he kept going back to the guy's record. Seven jobs in nine years. And then Sunas started talking about his own record of how long he was. I mean, they did they did bring this up. But I, I, I think the sad thing is when Sunas said he doesn't know our game. And the reality is, and this is where these pundits really need to just learn the facts or someone needs to get them out the door. Because there's zero English managers have won the Premier League. All right. The Italians are actually the ones who have won the most Premier Leagues. So I, I find these comments that they can get rolled out so casually by you know a, a pundit and a guy who's an ex-professional and ex-coach, it, it, it smacks of lack of preparation, lack of professionalism. Because to be honest with you, if you know you're going to be talking about Deserby on air, you should probably just like Wikipedia the guy for a second and look at his resume and find out that the first teams that he was coaching were actually super low level amateur teams. So when he did really well with them after one season, he'd get a promotion. That's the way it works. Suness is thinking like, well, why wouldn't they keep him around? Because he was too big for the job. So he moved on and he spent time at Sassuolo. And then the only reason he left Dinamo Kiev is of course the war. So I like what deserve going to be doing. I think he's a kind of a seamless replacement in the way the team, in the way Graham Potter had Brighton playing and the way he will have them playing. And on first notice uh, against Liverpool, 3-3 draw, Lando Trossard getting a hat trick. They're up 2-0 at one point as well. So that should be a lot of fun. But I just think this whole thing, you, you're going to continuously see this from guys like Grand Souness. And, and I, I would like to see the era where they start to get phased out. And hopefully we're not just personalities that, stoke debate and that seem to have agendas against players and people find it funny and divisive and things something to argue about i wish they would bring in people who are actually going to do their homework learn what they're talking about and deliver salient points that you know people can actually take to the conversations with their friends and be somewhat right about as opposed to completely out in the clouds like graham sunes tends to be all right Let's move on to international football for a second because that happened as well. There was a big international break. There was the Nations League, a bunch of friendlies, and also the World Cup kits were unveiled. So we're going to touch on a few of these things. First, let's actually start with the World Cup kits. Uh, I think Puma is the most disappointing. I look, Ghana's kit looks good, but like most of Puma's kits, they have that weird square in the middle. I'm not for it. I don't like it. It's just a strange template, and I, I just don't really like this the jerseys where you can see every single country is sponsored by the exact same uh, thing because almost every detail is identical, right? Save for a tiny few. So 
I think Puma gets the lowest grades. Now, I think Nike did pretty well. They had some good kits. I do not like the U.S. home kit. I do not like that Australia kit as well. The the weird, it's kind of like what I'm wearing, actually. It's, there's that weird triangle thing underneath the neck, which I'm not a fan of. I will also say, I, I'm not going to read this because it, I, I've read it a couple times and I just decided I do not want to subject anyone to it. But if you're curious, go ahead and read U- U.S. Soccer's explanation for the inspiration behind the kits. It's unbelievable. It's like literally corporate jargon all the way. I think they say diversity and inclusion like seven or eight times. It's a white shirt with like a blue triangle underneath the collar. It's like that's it. And you're saying it's like diversity and inclusion. It's very, very strange. Speaking of messages that go along with kits, Denmark went ahead with their more muted, their more toned down design where – the whole jersey is just like one color, right? The white is all white, the red is all red, and the badge is sort of, it's it's another red but slightly different shade, so you can still see the Hummel, you can still see the, the FA badge, but it's mostly toned down. And this is all because of, as they said, the human rights abuses in Qatar and that they, you know, want to make a stand. So... Before I move on to some of the rest of the kits, just to liven it up after what I'm about to say, I think this is getting a little bit insane. When the World Cup was first awarded to Qatar back in, I think it was 2010 or 2009, I, I remember thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. Like, like this is so obviously bought and and bribed for. At the time, I remember saying, just wait. Within the next six months, this is going to get overturned and it's going to go to another country. And at the time, I think the United States was next in line in the bidding process. So the big question was, what's going to happen, right? What, what What's going to happen with Qatar? And nothing did. And all of a sudden, the stadiums are starting to be built. And all of a sudden, you're hearing, and I heard about stories of migrants being brought over, people dying in stadium construction. I heard about this probably 10 years ago. Right Back in 2012, when stadium constructions were really ramping up, you were already hearing about this stuff. So the fact that it took the footballing community basically until teams knew they were qualifying to go, oh, wait, wait, uh, we, should, we should think about this, is ridiculous to me. And now the fact that a lot of countries are starting to come out and, in a way, virtue signal about how they feel about this competition, even though they're going to go play and, look, they'll recoup money from it in a lot of ways – Toning down a little bit of your badge and a little bit of your jersey, I think, does not do much. I agree with the bringing awareness to it, but there's a lot of things. I mean, Yemen's not going to be very far away from Qatar, and there's a genocide going on over there. So, you know, this is country is right next to Saudi Arabia, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of issues if you want to talk there. If you want to get into this, it's much more complex, and I think it's difficult to wade into those without getting a little bit hypocritical. But away from that, on to more of the kits, because that's fun. All right, I think Adidas did probably the best. Um, But my three favorite kits, I'll just give you these. Mexico away, takes the cakes, number one. Love that one. Ecuador away, I really like that, the blue one with all the designs. And then France away with the inlay, the white inlay that's really nice. Germany, Argentina, both all their kits I think are really good. I like Argentina's purple. But yeah, the US one, it's just like 
it's drawn a lot of ire here. A lot of people really, really don't like the home kit, and most people are really not that big of fans of the away kit. The funny thing is I, I look at the some of the other ones. I think Japan did a really good job. I think Korea did a good job. Brazil's away with the sort of leopard-style thing on the sleeves. The blue is very interesting. So I'm excited to see what these look like on people. I've seen some of them already, but at the tournament, when everyone's standing there with the national anthems, I'm very much looking forward to it. So... U.S. national team. The U.S. national team, there was a lot being said about the kits in advance. I think, you know, people were upset about that. And they were like, let's see what it looks like on the players. Well, it was just as bad as the performances. They were beaten 2-0 by Japan, drew Saudi Arabia 0-0. And basically, and this is from what I felt, but from what a lot of people on podcasts and different arenas around speaking about this have felt, the U.S. don't look like they're really going anywhere. And it's very difficult to feel like you have any questions answered about positions, about the tactics, how they should approach matches getting into the World Cup. And let me let me go ahead by saying one thing. First of all, when the draw came out, people here said easy group. And I have heard a lot of people talk about how the United States need to do certain things to have a shot at the World Cup. And that all we need to worry about is can we get a point off England if we do that? We can probably make it through, and if we outscore the other teams over England and they are not that much of a tagging team, we can win the group. I mean, there's all this stuff being said. Is it possible? Yes. But, well, you know what? I found someone who shares a similar opinion to me. As an immigrant to the United States, um, you know, mom being British, dad being Nigerian, two sucker crazy countries, a huge USMNT fan, huge ATL United fan. Let me just bring an international perspective in here. Um, the United States has B-level players across the board. You don't have a lot of skillful players like you think you will. No. Luca Della Torre, Musa, Dest, Reina have to be on the field as much as possible for you guys to be able to unlock the kind of stiff opposition you're going to face in the World Cup. You don't have a lot of skillful players. You don't have a lot of technically sound players like a Brazil, like a Senegal, like an Argentina, um, like an England now. Right now, the United States reminds me of what the English teams used to look like in the 90s. Not a lot of skillful players, not a lot of technical players. I think Greg Berhalter needs to just live in reality, understand the level the players are at, and just sit back and play a counter-attacking game. You have speed. You guys are athletic. You have to use that. You cannot play out the back. If you come to the field against England with trying to play out the back from your backfield, they will destroy the United States. I appreciate it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all that. So the United States is a decent team, but they are not the type of team that should go into a World Cup thinking like we really are aiming for the quarterfinals or better. It's like, no, get out of your group and see what happens. Because you get out of your group, finish second, and you face a juggernaut, and you perform well but lose, is that a failure of a World Cup? No. Even getting knocked out in the group stage, if you perform well, if you show well, if you do at least do well, if there's other teams that outplay you because they're simply better, that's okay as well. And I think this is the thing. The United States takes Iran very, very, very lightly. I think they all know that whales have some danger, but they, for some reason, the, the Americans really aren't that worried about whales. So, I, 
and 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 they definitely feel they have a shot against England. So look, we will see. But I, I've I've said this for a long time. The United States need to really just dial it back a little bit. Understand who you are. Understand what you bring to tournaments and what can make you successful. You're not Colombia, you know. Like Colombia are a team that have not very many players that are at superstar level in Europe, right? There's a fair few that are sort of in the mid-range in Europe, and there's some that play domestically, similar, say, to American players. But the Colombian players are a hell of a lot better technically. So if they have everything together, if they're organized, they can go toe-to-toe with the big boys and maybe get a victory. The United States have to play a different game. And what we've noticed is that most of the time, if the United States has less of the ball, they do better. And Greg Berhalter wants them to have more of the ball, in which games they tend to do worse. So there's a tactical issue there. And there's a lack of also understanding what you're actually good at and what you belong in terms of style of play and identity. So we will see, but I think this is uh, hopefully going to be a good wake-up call for the U.S. Another team that needs a wake-up call, La France. Yep, France is in a very weird position. You've got N'Golo Kante who's working his way back into training from a hamstring injury. Those are always concerning because you never know when they're going to come back. Paul Pogba, um, where do you start with Paul Pogba? I mean, not just the injury, having gone to Juventus and basically played once before getting injured. And then you've got the whole crazy story with his brother and then the witchcraft and all that stuff. I'm not really interested in it. I think it's just a wild story. Until we get more details from Matthias Pogba, I'm not really, I'm not really touching this one because it's just, it's just bizarre. But it's not a good look. You have Antoine Griezmann who's not really playing well, and then you've got a whole bunch of players that Didier Deschamps is sort of looking at for maybe the next generation. But are they ready for the World Cup? Could the World Cup curse of the winners bowing out in the first round continue? Well. We will see, but France don't really fill me with a ton of confidence right now. In reality, to me, Brazil, Argentina, Germany, they have to be the favorites. They, they, Germany, just because they're always good, even though we haven't seen a whole lot from them, it, it doesn't take, it's, it's seven games, you know, the whole tournament's seven games max. You get through your group stage, then you just... You're efficient in winning. You're efficient at beating teams and making them fall on themselves. Germany are very good at that in major tournaments. And they do have a very strong side. I think Argentina-Brazil are sort of ahead of everyone else. Leo Messi is looking imperious right now at PSG. Oh, and so is Neymar. So how about that? Both teams are on great runs. They have so many options. And they play very different styles. But I love it because they're very suited to who they are as well. The identity of these two teams is locked in. And I think that's more than you can say for most of the other squads around the world. Everyone else is having these big debates about not necessarily just selection of players or the manager, but entire style of play and identity. And that's not good going into the World Cup. And this World Cup is going to make things very, very weird. I mean, this mid-season thing, this mid-season tournament is going to just have an impact on everything. And I say everything in the sense that we don't really know what. We're just going to see the aftermath as... The tournament rolls out, and once the spring comes around, so yeah, it, it's 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 been a really really wild Nations League period. I mean, the Faroe Islands beat Turkey. That that like not not something people talked about. No one really mentioned that because England played Germany, and there were a few other games. But 
I mean, really, Faroe Island's beating Turkey's huge, so we got to give them props there. England relegated to the next level of the Nations League. You know what's interesting about this is that a lot of people say, well, we don't really care about the Nations League. It's going to be interesting when for draws for the Euros or for the World Cup down the line if this actually puts England in a worse position because that's kind of what's supposed to happen. So that'll be that'll be fascinating to see if there are repercussions for England on this. And coming back to England. Premier League kicked back off this weekend. We had... Well, you have to start with the Manchester Derby because of what a blockbuster performance it was for Man City. I don't understand why Casemiro was on the bench. That's pretty much my one giant question mark for Eric Ten Hag. I will say a lot of people said, I don't know why Christian Eriksen was playing. And and I can tell you one of the big reasons why. Because he had a massive impact against both Liverpool and Arsenal in those victories by picking up the ball in midfield and very, very quickly being able to create a penetrating pass once Man United won possession. So they'd win possession in their own end. One quick pass to get out of pressure. The next one is find Christian Eriksen, and he already knows the next ball. So then he's playing in Marcus Rashford goal. This is what was happening. So Ten Hag probably felt we can do this as well against them. Naive because City don't turn the ball over that much, and when they do, they are the best team in the league at winning it back. So Eriksen ended up being... A ghost. There are people who were saying, why on earth is Ericsson marking Holland? Well, Varane wasn't on the pitch, which was also a strange incident. Varane lying on the floor for like a minute with his ankle sort of tweaked while everyone just played around him. Talk about ruthlessness from City. Man. I mean, they easily could have kicked that ball out once or twice and just been like, fine. But no, they, they, were, they were desperate to get a second goal. So you can just see that intensity, that Guardiola even... Even when they were winning 6-2 and they got scored on, he was furious. Solid coaching. I like that. Connor Gallagher wrote himself uh, into the sort of narrative of the weekend for himself. I mean, gosh, he comes off the bench. And the funny thing is, I've listened to uh, Strata de Cobham, the Chelsea podcast from The Athletic, about this. And... They were saying that it was kind of unbelievable the reception he was getting from Palace fans beginning of the game during warm-up, when he went to when he went to warm-up before he got on the field, and then when he came on the field, he was getting this amazing reception. And then stoppage time, he hits a banger in the top corner to win the game 2-1, doesn't celebrate, and at the end of the game, they're still applauding him. So fair play to Crystal Palace fans, and uh, fair play to Conor Gallagher for having built those bridges that solid that you can go back score winning goal and they're not you know just telling you to fuck off basically so yeah I I thought that was uh I thought that was pretty interesting Tiago Silva should he have been red carded in that game oh you know what probably I've watched it a few times and I think you can you can make a case for a yellow but it as you try to it sort of just gets harder and harder you realize you're just hinging on well he's like 30 yards from goal so is it really an obvious chance and everyone would be like well if you were in that position you'd feel it was an obvious chance and i do agree with that so i mean that's why that game had a lot going to it in the end tiago silva uh, assists obamiang's goal and then connor gallagher comes on scores against the side that really gave him his premier league break last season Liverpool are really struggling, and you know what's funny is one of the players that I coach at the high school level, he said, Klopp's seventh year. This is Klopp's seventh year. Every time he's at a club his seventh year, it all falls apart. I mean, this guy's 14, so uh, he he doesn't really, you know, he's never experienced this. I experienced watching what happened at Dortmund, 
And there is something similar here. And I don't know exactly what it is, right? How these seven-year curse things are, I don't really believe in curses. I, I just think that things happen a certain amount of times and then probability strikes. But maybe there's something about the way he recycles teams, that he uses a group for an extremely consistent amount of time. They, per, they perform exactly the way they're supposed to at an extremely high level, extremely high intensity. But then bringing in players that sort of jump straight into that, and I think a player that clearly showed that was Luis Diaz, slid right into that. But Minamino, for instance, didn't really fit into that midfield mold. Keita, though Nabi Keita has been a good player, he is he's never really seemed like he's at the same gear as what Henderson and Vinaldum, you know, and then you have a guy like Thiago Alcantara who can do things with the ball no Liverpool player has been able to do with the ball in the middle of the field. And so he creates a different option for them, which I think was a really good signing, but they haven't quite been able to complement him yet. He also isn't fit enough for long enough to really stamp you know, his position in the team. And if you have to consistently play different based on whether he's there or not, that can be difficult. Then you get Darwin Nunes, who, let's all be honest, he was outstanding at Benfica last season, but his stats the previous two seasons were very low. It was you know stats of a young guy just getting in, learning his trade, and then bang, he has a season where everything goes right for him. Now he goes to Liverpool. Jury's still out. I still think that he's going to be a good success. I think he's going to be great in the Premier League. But, yeah, in a Liverpool team that's struggling to create chances, and um, not that not that they struggle overall in general to, to create chances, but they're struggling to create chances in a way that gives them dominance in a game where a forward can just go ahead and gobble up chances and get goals. It feels more like, well, if you don't score now, we might get scored on next. And that's tough pressure for a young guy. So... It'll be interesting to see how that goes. The funny part is that there were these people making claims that Darwin Nunes was going to be better than Holland. Oh, my goodness. They must not have been watching Holland. I mean, the first time I saw this guy was when he scored nine goals in one game for Norway at, like, the under-20 World Cup. And he was, yeah, it looked like a 20-year-old playing against 14-year-olds. That's what it looked like. And ever since he's gotten to the pro game, it kind of just still looks like that. He just gets bigger and stronger, and now... Among the men, he looks bigger than all of them, and he's got every single way of scoring, and he's in a team that's going to make so many chances for him. So that narrative can be put to bed. I also don't think Man United should really worry too much about this past match, so Man United fans out there, just hang in there. I think things are kind of turning around. Now, I will say, let's move on to the top of the table. Arsenal, who thought it? But... Also, this is a testament to the work Arteta is doing. For those of you out there who have been criticizing him for a long, long time, saying you don't think he's got it, saying you don't think he's up for the job, this is a clear, clear build. They've had a few peaks and valleys along the way, but that is the way progress goes. It's never just an uphill, simple, linear climb. You have to fall a few times, which they've done, but the key is how they've always reacted. And I have to say, Arsenal props because they beat Spurs who were quite limp Uh, it was not a very good North London derby in terms of what kind of match it was I think that Arsenal were just better and Spurs should have brought more to the table but it's it's quite an incredible thing and then I I just want to close out there's 
I watched Leicester against Nottingham Forest yesterday. And Brendan Rodgers needed that. I think they couldn't have asked for a better team to play against. It could have been so different. Uh, Taiwo Awonyi hits the post, and then within two minutes, Leicester take the lead, and then they get a second, and then they get a third, and then it's just kind of like done. So really disappointing for Forrest, I think, the way that game rolled out. But my goodness, do they look like relegation candidates. And it is crazy. I mean, this situation, if you were a player signed in June or early July at Nottingham Forest, and then Jesse Lingard comes in for fat money, and you're thinking, all right, like, couple more players, we're going to make a run at this Premier League, we're going to get in there, and we're going to try and you know top half finish as a first season. Why not? And then they go and they sign like another 10 or 12 guys. And you're sitting there going like, who, what, what, what team is this? So for Steve Cooper, I, I, I just feel for him. This is a situation that he's going to struggle in. He may get fired pretty soon. But then whoever takes over this job, like what are they going to do? Are they just going to be like, that's it. I'm freezing out like a third of the team. And they're just going to train with the youth. And you guys can sell them in January because it just doesn't matter. And if I la- if I last that long. I mean, that's what they would have to do because there's no way you can bring 23 guys or th- like 30, 30 guys. I don't even know how many they have at this point to bring all those players in and decide on an 11 and then a rotation of four, f- four or five that you bring off the bench. And you can't chop it and change it every week. Not at that level. So I, I just don't know. I think, I think Forrest are going to go back down and it's all going to be because of this transfer policy. So completely insane. Champions League is underway. I started watching Bayern Munich against Victoria Pilsen, and uh, yeah, I saw three quick, quick goals and decided, you know what, I need to record this episode. It has been far too long. Marseille were 3-1 up on uh, Sporting Lisbon last I checked, Sporting down to 10 men. The big one today, Barcelona against Inter Milan. This is a huge one for Barcelona, who are... really trying to revive everything. And and Champions League money is going to matter a lot. So they need to win today. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. The calendar of football is crunching together. The World Cup is coming. I'm going to be doing some episodes on the World Cup really to try and warm us up as we go into it. Previews on groups, previews on teams. May even see if I can sync up with uh, someone from uh, someone who does betting, right, and uh, get their ideas on what some of the things might be because I've done World Cup betting in the past. Uh, it's the only place I've put money into football, and it can be fun. If you if you look through, you might you can find some ways to uh, sort of guarantee you'll make a little bit of money and have a lot of fun at the same time. <laughs> all right, everybody. I appreciate all of you who have stuck around. Thank you so much for tuning back in. I have to say, I also had issues with hardware. I had to get a new adapter, and that one didn't work, so I had to get another one. But I'm back up and running. This is the thing about having a podcast by yourself. Uh, It's all on you to make these things happen. And so if I am away for a little bit, I apologize for anyone who dies to listen to this. And for anyone else out there who is new to the show, I appreciate. Thank you very much. Hit that follow button on your Spotify or any of your podcast things and keep up to date with episodes. I promise they won't be monthly. Everybody, thank you so much. This is Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. Have a lovely week.